I'm, I'm excited. I wasn't quite sure how many we'd have show up today, but we are happy that you're here. And I think I'm just going to make an executive decision. We will do Sunday school after church. Um, now, if you run away, that's fine. We won't be offended or hurt. But uh, in, in the adult class, we're finishing up that series on what it looks like, what knowing God looks like. And then Jake will be working with the kids downstairs. So we're excited to have you. We'll That'll kick up about 11.30. I've got the coffee on ready, but I haven't pushed the button, so uh, it, it'll, it'll happen uh, after church. Love to have you be a part of that. Um, we're continuing on in the story of Jesus now as is seen through the Gospel of Luke. And last week we saw this struggle when the hometown boy doesn't really fit the mold for what everybody wants out of a Messiah. They want some special connection. They want some special privileges because he grew up there. They knew him when he was a little kid. Uh, and Jesus kind of flips that on its head. And we also see that the passage that he read from Isaiah, he really talks about what his role is, what he's come to do. This whole idea of, of preaching the good news of the coming of God and his kingdom and to set free those who were held captive and also to open the eyes of the blind. And I focused last week on the fact that very often it's opening our eyes to who Jesus really is and how he wants to do things. So this week, we're actually going to pick up where we left off in chapter 4, and we're going to do a whole big chunk of text. There's actually seven little stories that we're going to follow. What, what Luke begins to do here is he goes rapid fire through a bunch of things that happens as Jesus travels throughout Galilee, throughout the whole region. And so what I'm going to do is kind of read and skip and read and skip, I'm, just to kind of get through it all. I'll, I'll read some stories starting in 431, and I'll, I'll fill you in on the details. Some of them are really well known, so I'm not reading them fully. Um, but it's, it's just after his hometown buddies. you got to get this. Remember, all the people he grew up with wanted to throw him off the cliff, and then he walked right away, right through the middle of them. And then we pick up in chapter 4, verse 31. And I'll read the first couple of stories, and then we'll just kind of walk our way through it. If you have your Bible or your phone or whatever, you, I would really encourage you to follow along. Uh, just to... I could have delved into just one story, but all of them kind of communicate something together, and that's what I wanted to get at today. So we'll start with chapter 4, verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people, and they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit, and he cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are! With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. And Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she got up at once and began to wait on them. And at sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. And at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching 
in the synagogues of Judea. And now in, in chapter 5, the first 11 or 12 verses, uh, yes, 11, he picks the 12 disciples, right? He, he, remember the story, he's teaching by the sea, and, and he calls the fishermen over, and he gets in their boat, and he goes out there, and he teaches some more. And then he tells Peter and his, and his friends, go out and let down your nets. And they say, oh, we haven't caught anything all night, but just because it's you, we'll do it. And they catch more fish than they can imagine. They have to call for help in that story. And then Peter falls on his knees before Jesus and says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, hey, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to fish for men. And then we pick it up in 5, verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and he begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that the crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And then there's this well-known story, I'm going to skip from reading again, of the paralytic that gets let down through the roof. You remember that? His friends bring him, they cut a hole in the roof. Jesus is teaching, and, and what he does is he gets the, the teachers of the law really upset because he talks about forgiving the man's sins, and there's this conflict there, this moment of tension, and then Jesus says, just so you know that I can do this, get up and walk, take your mat, go home. And the guy gets up, and he walks away. And it, after that, he goes right into... To, to a, a challenging time where he calls another disciple, a guy named Levi, or Matthew, who's a tax collector. And, and then he goes to this party at Matthew's house with all of Matthew's friends, and the, the leaders of the religious people are upset because no well-knowing Jew would go in and hang out with those people. The theme continues as they question his disciples about why they don't fast. This is in 5... 33 to 39, why don't you fast like the disciples of John? And Jesus explains, things are new now, things are different. And then it wraps up in chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. There's two stories there, one in the field, one in the synagogue, and we'll, I'll read one to 6, 1 to 11, and we'll go from there. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain and rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. And some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then Jesus said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. And on another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up, stand up in front of everyone. And so he got up and stood there. And then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And he looked around at them all and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now, it, it is a lot of text to cover, lots of stories. I, I know most of you guys have been around the church a while. You probably heard those stories. Nothing really new there. 
But the reason, like I say, that I didn't just want to pick one of them, I wanted to cover the whole swath, is because there's a bunch of diverse stories but common themes. There are some threads that weave through all these seven incidences that are important to notice. After announcing his prophetically given mission from the book of Isaiah, Jesus starts doing these things that the mission talks about. And Luke tells story after story that illustrates that. There's three themes I want you to see. They constantly surface. The first, Jesus is living out the power to heal and to set free. Over and over again, he's healing, he's casting out demons. In the first section, verse 32, it says, they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. There's some power in what he says. And when he gets up to talk, it's not like somebody else, right? There's an authority there. And then he casts out this demon. In verse 36, they're amazed. Who We've never seen anybody teach like this with authority and power to cast out demons. And then he goes on to heal Peter's mother-in-law. And, and as the evening went on at Peter's house, they're bringing everybody from the town of Capernaum. And, and he's healing them all. If you skip down to 5, chapter 12, this man, it says, completely covered with leprosy. There was no doubt what his issue was. He came and he fell on his face and, and Jesus touches him and heals him. And the news spreads all the more. Continuing on, the paralytic, what does he do? He takes his mat and he goes home. And Jesus is emphasizing his authority there. In verse 24 of chapter 5, he says, but, you, but, but so you guys, you chief priests and teachers of the law, so that you may know that I have authority to forgive sins, get up and walk and the guy does it. Right? He, he's, he's got this power and authority to set free and to heal. And at the end of that section, it says, we have seen remarkable things today. The people can't believe what they're seeing. And then the last section in the synagogue on that Sabbath where the man with the withered hand gets up, right? It, he goes toe-to-toe with these religious leaders because they're, they're watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And he gets the guy up in front, and they think, we've got him. He's going to do it. And then he asks this question, tell me, what's lawful, to do good? or evil on the Sabbath, to, to give life or to withhold it or take it away. And they're not going to answer because anything they say is going to give him permission to heal the guy, but he doesn't need their permission. He just heals his hand anyway. Jesus is a force to be reckoned with. He's like no, nothing anybody's ever seen before. He has the power to heal people and to set them free. And that's, that's one of the themes we see in all those stories. Second, a clear and pervasive theme that he's demonstrated to everybody who watches him is an embrace of the outsiders. He picks his disciples in chapter 5, 1 to 11. He needs to find this core group, and he starts with fishermen. He starts with fishermen. Seven of the 12 disciples had some kind of background in fishing. And, and you need to realize, fishermen were, fishermen were only slightly above the shepherds on the social ladder. Because of their type of work, they often were ceremonial unclean, ceremonially unclean. They were restricted from the temple. They were not looked up to in, in society at all. They're not the people that the rabbis would typically go to to pick for their disciples. And yet what you see Jesus doing is, is actually welcoming these fishermen. And he even uses it and says, guys, now you're going to fish for human beings. He uses the metaphor. He's embracing the outsiders. It gets even worse in chapter 5, verse 27, when he goes to Matthew. 
right? The tax collector. Of all people, you would not choose to follow as a Jewish rabbi. You would not choose for, to be a follower. It would be Matthew. And not only does he say, follow me, he goes to his house and hangs out with all his friends. And he eats and drinks, which is a cultural custom of social acceptance. He's embracing the outsider. No seriously devoted Jew would ever go into Matthew's house to have a meal. And yet here's the rabbi, the Messiah, and he's doing it. And it, 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 it gets people mad. We'll talk about that in a, more, in a minute. And look at the healings. You know, Ill, illness in the Old Testament and New Testament was often seen as a curse of God. You remember what the, what the disciples said when they saw the blind man? They said to Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. The assumption was if you, were, if you had a physical illness or a malady or something like that, a, a disability, that it was a curse from God. And yet those are the very people he's touching and blessing. It's an embrace of the outsiders of normal Jewish life. That's a constant theme in this section. And that leads to the third theme, continuing conflict with the insiders. You had to pick that up. The conflict of Jesus and the religious leaders is all throughout all of these texts. In verse 21 of chapter 5, they start thinking, to who he's forgiving this man's sins? Who can do that? It says, who forgives sins but God alone, right? They're, they're, they're questioning his theology. This doesn't make sense. And, and I love it. He calls them on what they were thinking. They didn't even have to say it. Talk about conviction. <laughs> when... When, when somebody reads your mind and calls you on it, it's a powerful moment. But it makes them even more angry. And then, then they, they, they complain to him about Matthew's house to his disciples, actually. They didn't want to talk to Jesus anymore. They complained to the disciples, why does your master eat with these people? And he says, because it's, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. He goes on, and they're, they're comparing him to John's disciples and saying, but you guys aren't fasting. You're not doing good Jewish practice. And Jesus basically gives this metaphor of the wineskins, and he says, guys, something new is happening. And, and, and you, you can't do it the old way anymore. And see, what, what happens with the religious leaders when something new is happening, the something old, which is them, is not happy. And you see those three, three themes, power to heal and set free and embracing the outsiders and challenging the insiders, conflict with the insiders. And I want you to realize what Luke is doing here really is just showing Jesus living out his mission. He's, he's going back to what we read last week in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. And, he, and he's just saying this is exactly what Jesus said he was going to do. Good news, freedom, and challenging blindness or healing blindness. Back in chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. And then he backs back out again, like we talked last week, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And, and this good news to the poor is seen in the way he welcomes all who had been cast aside, the way he embraces the outsiders. These are people that would not be welcomed by the religious core of, Jew, of Jewish society. The poor, the laborers, those outside the, the norms of the day. This is his good news. His, his, his healing moves on to that idea of freedom for the oppressed. It's in the powerful and authoritative ways that he's setting the demon possessed free and taking the leper and making him clean. The, the lame man is up walking again. 
Freedom for the prisoners and release for the oppressed is, is, is what Isaiah called it. And Jesus does it in all these stories. And finally, we see that push to open the eyes of the blind, the teaching that he was giving, and the conflict that came out of it as he, as he tried to get the Jewish leaders to see the truth instead of being blinded. He's just rehearsing story after story that illustrates that thing back in the Nazareth synagogue where he read from Isaiah. And all this activity, all this good news, all this setting free, all this opening the eyes of the blind is fueled by prayer and by solitude. Twice in this section, we see Jesus stepping away from it all to spend time in prayer and solitude with his father. After all that activity at Capernaum, it says the next morning after he'd healed all those people, the people were looking for him. Come on, this is great. Yeah, I know you healed my mom last night, but I've got a cousin that lives just the next village over. Can we go there? And it, what does he say in, verse, in, in 40, four, chapter 4, verse 42? It says, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. Stay. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. The way he stays centered on his calling is this solitary time with the Father. He reconnects with the Father to reconnect with the mission. And that's where it's coming back to, we've talked about this a lot, and I always struggle when we talk about it, because it's, or when I, t I say we talk about it, and it's actually me talking about it, but I'm hoping you've engaged with it some. Um, this Talk about the Trinity and this divine life that flows through the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and how we're invited into that. You see, that's Jesus comes away to be a part of that, to, to receive that divine life that flows through him, which gives him the authority and the power to do what he's doing. And, and when he does that in chapter 4, it leads to choosing the disciples. And then again, as his popularity grows, in chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, it says, Yet the news about him spread all the more, and the crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places, and he prayed. See, the mission is what he was given to do. But the undercurrent that I want you to see in this text all along the way is that Jesus is fueling his mission by being connected with the Father, Son, and Spirit, Father and Spirit, in, in that Trinitarian connection, that communion with them. He's proclaiming good news to the outcasts. He's setting people free from what's burdened them, and he's opening the eyes of all who are willing to see the truth to the truth of God. And it's all flowing out of his deep relationship with the Father and the Spirit. And, and the reason that's important, now we, we just covered a huge chunk of text. I've tried to highlight some things, but the reason it's important, I mean, I, I'm glad you know these things. I'm glad I've taught them to you. But the point is, Jesus says our mission is related to his. He said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. The calling of all believers, of all of us who claim Jesus as our Lord, is to be the body of Christ, to be the hands and feet, to be doing what he's done in the world. He's become the model and the prototype of what human beings should be. That, that's the way we should live as followers in the kingdom of God. He said that in John 20, 21, right after the resurrection. He comes into the upper room and Jesus said, peace be with you to the disciples, which was probably a good thing to say when they're seeing a dead man alive again. Peace be with you. And then he says, 
as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I want you to do what I was sent to do. What I talked about in Nazareth, in the synagogue, that's what I want you to do. And you say, I can't do that. And you're right. (laughs) That's way beyond us. But that's why in Romans 2, it talks about the fact that God is going to do this in Romans 8, 29. And God works us in us to accomplish this. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to do what? To be conformed to the likeness of his son. This is a promise that when God called you, he promised that he would make you look like Jesus, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what should our lives be characterized in? What's our mission? If we're sent as he was sent, it's obvious, right? The good news of welcome and embrace. That should be a hallmark of our lives. It's a hallmark of the ministry of Jesus. Those who felt outside and far from God and his acceptance were welcomed in. That's, that was his mission. Good news to the poor, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, and that's our mission. And sometimes, I'll admit it, it feels uncomfortable to us as if if we overemphasize God's love, we underemphasize his justice and his holiness. We worry that if we're not clear about sin and, and the devastating effects of sin, that it will look like we're minimizing it. If we're too welcoming, if we love people too much, they won't get the gravity of their sin or that we're selling out the holiness of God. But what I see in Jesus is is the holiness of God became enfleshed, embodied, right? The holiness of God, the same holiness that Isaiah fell on the ground before in Isaiah chapter 6 and said, woe is me, I'm a sinful man. That same holiness walked into the party at Matthew's house and hung out with all of Matthew's sinful friends. In in Jesus, something has radically changed. It's not that the holiness of God is minimized. It's because of Jesus, it can actually be present in these places that we never thought it would go. And, And often today, I'm afraid the church is more concerned about drawing lines than clearly communicating that God loves humanity. I I don't want to downplay the impact of sin. It devastates people. It destroys you. I don't want to minimize the justice of God because I believe in that and and I hope for that and I long for that justice because it will make all things right. But I'm saying that what we see in Jesus is a welcome and embrace of the very people that the religious structures of that day wanted to push away. And if he tells us, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you, then I think that should be a characteristic of our lives. Paul hints at this in Romans 2, in Romans 15, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Where were you when Christ accepted you? How holy and ready for God were you? And Paul says, accept others the way you've been accepted. Last week we celebrated communion this table that Jesus has set for us, right, of his body and his blood, that this welcome place where he wants us to come and receive forgiveness and transformation and be nourished to go out into the world. And that table speaks of this welcome and this embrace. I, I love there's a communion liturgy. I'm, I'm, you guys realize I'm way too liturgical for a Baptist, but there's this phrasing, Jake has used it before too, I think, um, 
that some liturgical churches use. It starts like this. It says, this is the table, not of the church, but of God. It is to be made ready for those who love God and who want to love God more. I love that. Come to this table, you who have much faith and you who would like to have more. You who have been here often and you who have not been here for a long time. You who have tried to follow Jesus and you who have failed. Come not because I invite you. It's God. And it's God's will that you who want God should meet God here. I love that communion liturgy because it, it says you're welcome. God wants you. That should be the message of the church. And no, it doesn't need to minimize sin. We don't need to. But, but ultimately, God came despite sin. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And can we be honest, if we had to be worthy to come to the communion table, how many of us would ever be able to pick up that cup? Nobody, right? Nobody. And I think that, that, that should be reflected out into the world. Our lives should be characterized by this, this good news of God's welcome and embrace of anyone who is willing to come. Second, as we grow into that, as the Spirit issues that welcome in our lives, We'll become vehicles of this power that brings freedom. Look at Luke 5.17. Let me look at Luke 5.17. One day Jesus was teaching. This is just before he heals the paralyzed man. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. that same power can flow through us. Now, you don't believe me? <laughs> Listen to what Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, remember there's opening blinded eyes, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power it's like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. It says that that same power that raised Jesus from the dead flows through us. Now, Jeff, are you saying that we can heal the sick and we can cast out demons? What I'm saying is the Bible is very clear that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead flows through us. Now, the trick, I think, very often is we, we start thinking this is our power and it's a magic trick and it's something I can do whenever I pray. I can, I can get God to do whatever I want where God becomes our servant boy to do whatever we want him to do. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm saying, I, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't zap people. I don't know how to use it. But that's, that's the blinded eyes part. I, I tend to want to enforce my vision of what God's power would look like if it showed up on the situation instead of just becoming the vehicle that it flows through. I think we've probably had experiences where you felt that, where, where someone has come and been with you in a time of trouble and they may not have done anything miraculous, but you just drew strength from that. You, you felt power. Just this morning we had a friend from town who is sometimes quite resistant to any talk of God or anything that we do. He's been a very difficult guy, but he shows up here because he likes our muffins. And uh, Jake gave him some muffins this morning. He's sitting out there. He was sitting out there, and, and the worship team was practicing. And I walked out, and he's just bawling, just bawling. 
And it, and it was, you gave, you gave your life away. You gave, and, I, and I, I, just, I sat down with him, and we had this conversation. I prayed for him. He was just soft. Because you know why? Because the power of God was flowing through this worship team, practicing in a way that they couldn't even imagine. They were just singing. They were doing their thing. And the Spirit said, I'm going to get that guy. I'm going to touch him. And see, that, that's the power that flows to us. Do you know how many times I've talked to that guy multiple times, tried to convince we've, we've had him? Never, never. But he sits there and he hears the, hears the music and the Spirit just breaks him in half. That's the way the power of God flows. See, far too often our, our desire for the power of God looks different than what God wants it to be. But the truth is it's there. And it should be flowing through our lives. That's why our life should also be marked by both admitting and challenging blindness. We have to admit our own blindness, right? To realize that we have an idea of what the Messiah should look like and how God's power should be and what the church should do and who's, who's doing the right thing and who's not. We have these visions and these ideas and we have to admit that we're locked into something that may not be the way God wants to work. I, I love it. I was listening to a, a guy yesterday as I was shoveling. Anybody do any shoveling this week? I put my little earphones in and I listened to this. I was listening to this teacher talk and he, he just said something kind of in passing, but it really struck me. He talked about Christians and the introductory drowning ceremony that you have as Christians. And he said, I'm talking about baptism. And I thought, that's really interesting because what, he's, what, what, what baptism is, it's this drowning of us and this coming back up into new life of all our old ways, of all our ways of thinking God should do things, letting those die and letting God give us what he wants to do. We overestimate our own clarity far too often. How many of you have ever seen that with your children? They think they really understand. They think they got it. <laughs> and we do the same thing God says about his children. My kids do that too. They think they've got it all figured out, but they haven't got a clue. So will we admit our own blindness and will we challenge others? That's what we see Jesus doing in John 9. Jesus is teaching, he says, For judgment I've come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And some Pharisees knew he was talking to them. They heard him say this and they said, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This whole idea, that, that's one of the problems with our religious structures is we far too easily drift into thinking we've got it all figured out. And Jesus comes to blow those apart sometimes. We have to lay aside the way the Pharisees see that so often comes to us after time in church settings and begin to open our eyes to who Jesus is. Well, how does that happen? How do we share the good news of welcome and embrace? How do we let that power flow through us? How do we acknowledge our own blindness and challenge it in others? <laughs> well, just like Jesus, it's all flowing out of a relational communion. It has to start there. The mission doesn't earn you the connection with God. Doing those things doesn't mean you get relational communion with God. Relational communion is the foundation that all those things flow out of. And Jesus was clear in John 15. He says, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. That's why we see him all along the way taking time. 
setting aside, getting out of this speed and flow of life and this pull of everybody wanting him to do something for them, to be with the Trinity. And that's hard for us. This whole idea of relational communion is not something, like we talk about relationships, but what does it mean to be drawing divine life from God? What does that mean? We like to be active. We like to do things. And sometimes being alone with God feels like nothing is happening. You ever have that feeling? You're praying, and all of a sudden you're sleeping. Or you're thinking about something else, and you feel like, what am I doing here? This is not productive. And yet this quiet and prayer is the core of what we're called to be. We're coming into a new year. And um, it's the time of year we always think, and I've been thinking a lot about, about all that we do here at Grace. And we have a vision out there that, that as a church we've adopted. I hope you kind of refresh your mind with that. It says that we, we, uh, our vision is lives renewed and a community transformed by the power of the gospel. We want to see lives renewed. We want to see our church and our community transformed we want it all to happen by the power of the gospel. And we say the mission, what we do to accomplish that is we try to help people take one step closer to Jesus. Take them from where they are to one more step. And we have values around that. We have commitments that we make. We talk about committing to worship and learning and relationships and mission. But the reality is, and, and the thing that, that makes it hard to evaluate sometimes is all those things can be faked. All those things can be counterfeit. All those things can be actions that we do with absolutely no connection flowing from God. And I love what we do. I love worship and the teaching we do. I love the kids' ministries we do. I, I love the fact that we opened up to the stranded travelers. I love the fact that we hosted the emergency weather shelter for a few weeks. I love all that. But if it's not flowing out of every person here deepening their communion with God, it's, it's a house of cards. And as we come into this year, my hope is you'll commit to the mission of helping people all around you take one step closer to Jesus, including yourself. But the first step for that is to live in a relationship with Jesus, to slow down long enough so that he can open my eyes to my blindness, to hear from him the words of welcome and embrace. One of the reasons that the church hesitates to be welcoming is because we are afraid if people come in, we will lose something. We don't realize that we've been welcomed and embraced. We want to sense the power of God at work. We, and it's really got to start with this time of being with Jesus, whether it feels productive or not. Just quieting our heart enough and learning to pray. As that happens, guess what? As you do that, believe it or not, you'll take one step closer there's no way you won't if you're doing that. It will happen. And lives will be renewed. And the community of GBC and the hope around it will be transformed by the power of the gospel. That's the beautiful thing about it. As, as, as the worship team was preparing to serve you this morning by leading you in worship, they were just doing what, they, what they're supposed to do. And God just showed up. I love that. all by the power of the gospel, the good news that we can live in relationship with Jesus. And as the Father has sent him, he is sending us. Let's pray. God, we want to be your instruments here. And I confess it's way easier to be active and to be doing something and, than it is to sit and pray and be with you. 
to allow your spirit to kind of search my own heart. I think we all fall guilty of that. But God, help us to, to retreat from activity, to know you, and to let that fuel the activity that comes out of our lives, to let that, that presence, that welcome and embrace that you give to us, that opening the eyes of our, blind, of our, of our blindness, that power that comes that flows through you to set us free from the things that have held us back. Help us to, to welcome that personally in relationship with you and then let that flow through us to the world around us. Help us to, as you promised, to be conformed to the image of your son. In your name we pray, amen. One of the things you've got to understand, and this is one of the things I learned in that seminary course I took called Coaching High School Girls Basketball, um, it doesn't, when you're a coach of a basketball team, you go in and you want to give them this locker room inspiring conversation. It's going to go get them out there and they're going to win the game. And that's all important and everything. But you know what? If, if, if you haven't practiced with them, if they haven't internalized the skills they need, you can be the most inspiring coach in the world and nothing's going to happen. And I feel like what I want to say to you today is I'm not just saying go get about the mission of Jesus, preach the good news, set people free. I'm saying let the love of God come to you deeply, powerfully, every day, every morning. John tells us two things, and well, he tells us a lot of things in 1 John, but he says, first of all, uh, we love because he first loved us. It starts, this multiplying our love starts by receiving the love of God. And he says, we've, we, in another place, we've come to this place where we have come to, to know and rely on the love of God. And that's, what, that's where the fruit comes from, as we know the love of God for us. And as we rely on that and rest in that, guess what? Good news gets preached to the poor. Power of God flows through us. And our eyes are open, and so are the eyes of the people around us. And, and we begin to see... Lives renewed, a community transformed by the power of the gospel. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.